0: Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with my boy, my producer, my better half, other than my wife, Phineas. What's happening, Phineas?
1: Not much, Xander. How are you today? Doing good, man. Well, I'm excited about this week with Jason Flom, who I want you to introduce. How did you meet Jason initially, and how would you describe what he does?
0: So, you know, I'm adjacent to a bunch of grant-making around criminal justice reform because of the family office that I work within. And uh, Jason's also a big donor in criminal justice reform. And so there's, there's certain things that our office and Jason both had a hand in or, or support, the bail project being one of them. But Jason's been in the game since before it was cool. You know, Jason, Jason's been helping wrongfully convicted people and even more... Um, a more volatile topic, which which was paying bail for folks. And in the 90s, you paid bail for a criminal. People would look at you sideways. It was not the most popular thing to do. We've come a long way in how we think about our justice system and getting a better understanding about how it punishes poverty and punishes black and brown people. Uh, et cetera, But you've got to respect people who had the moral clarity to see it for what it is before it had any sort of like cultural value.
1: So this is a topic we've touched on from a number of different angles right. on the show already. Most poignantly, Robin Steinberg talking about cash bail. I mean, we've talked about criminal justice. We've talked about incarceration with Johnny Perez, solitary confinement. Totally. With Jason Flom specifically, how would you describe his work in this area?
0: Uh, well, a lot of his work and what he's very public facing with is wrongful convictions. Uh, one because it's a crisis. he explains in the episode like how many people were putting in prison despite you know evidence that they're innocent because our processes are so bad. So one he thinks is a crisis. Two, and I've heard him say this, it's a real lane into building empathy for folks that maybe aren't fully there in terms of you know criminals are people, et cetera. Yeah, I've heard him make the argument, how many innocent people are you comfortable executing? Because when you say you're for the death penalty, you're also for killing some innocent people then. And like, how comfortable are you with that? And so I think he thinks it's a lane into opening the discussion with people who aren't you know, fully on our side of the equation.
1: He also gained increased popularity because of his podcast, Wrongful Conviction, which I was actually a fan of prior. And that probably heightened his profile in the space significantly more than he maybe expected.
0: Totally. I mean, and the guy has a big profile already in the music industry, and he's been great about kind of using that both like IP, like what his understanding for the entertainment biz and
1: his relationships for good. So many of the people we have on the show are multifaceted and arrive at their activism later in their careers or at varying points in their career. And I think he's such an interesting example because depending on which group you're talking to, they're gonna know him for a different thing.
0: Totally, yeah, he's he's been a lot of things to a lot of people. He's been a grant maker, he's been a connector, he's been an entrepreneur, you know, that's helped folks out. What's interesting about him is a lot of folks, it seems like philanthropically make a decision where they say, I am a systems reform person, And so I can't do the direct service stuff. I'm not gonna think about the direct service stuff. I'm gonna use every penny I can to reform the systems. Therefore, I'm helping a lot of people if we get it done, right? And then some people usually early on in your philanthropic journey, you do more direct service stuff. I help folks on one-to-one level or programs that just help people get started, et cetera. And he continues to do both. He literally walks people out of prison and does individual advocacy campaigns and then also invest heavily in the systems reform stuff. Yeah, Yeah, as I think a lot about like the stuff I'm up to, I think having kind of a foot in both worlds can be really healthy because you can become almost like too ideological and too detached from reality and too academic if you only you know, use one muscle. And that doesn't mean it needs to be like 50%, 50%. But I, I do think some you know, on the ground work, working with individuals, really understanding uh, people is important
1: and, and keeps, him, keeps him really grounded. All right, so you're in an elevator on the top floor and you're riding with somebody who's never heard of Jason Flom and you have three floors worth of elevator time <laughs> to describe who he is and what he does. What would you say? He's a music
0: producer or a music executive that gives his heart and soul into reforming our justice system so we can have a fair, more equitable, less miserable system to actually help people and stop harming people.
1: Yeah, beautiful. All right, let's do it. Let's get into it.
0: Jason Flom, thank you for being on What We Don't Know. Appreciate you being here.
2: Yeah, well, there's a ton of stuff I don't know, so this is perfect. Maybe I can learn some shit, <laughs> you know?
0: So we always like to kick these things off uh, with like kind of an obvious question, or it can feel obvious, but just, you know, what what is the issue we're talking about today? And so today we're talking about wrongful convictions and there's a bunch of things that are unjust and wrongfully put people in prison. But when we're talking about wrongful convictions, we're talking about something specific. Can you define what a wrongful conviction is and the ways you work within it?
2: Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, we have, you know, let's look at it on the macro level, right? So we have 2.3 million people in prison in America, which is obscene and insane and impossible to even comprehend a number that big. Yeah. And the best estimates are that somewhere between 4 and 10 percent of those people are innocent actually innocent of the crime for which they were convicted so let's take a mid case number say it's around six or seven percent And when you divide that by 2.3 million you end up with hundreds of thousands of people who are wrongfully convicted in prison right now while we're sitting here in you know, somewhere between 100 and 200,000 in a mid case scenario sitting languishing suffering in prison cells in america while we're sitting here having this conversation. And a wrongful conviction, by definition, is a person who is wrongfully convicted is convicted of a crime that they did not commit. They factually, actually did not commit the crime, but they were convicted of it anyway. And there are a lot of reasons why it happened so frequently, but that's what a wrongful conviction is.
0: It says something that we have as many innocent people in prison that most countries, our size are slightly smaller, but per capita, have period incarcerated. That's that's how out of whack our justice system is and how carceral it is.
2: You know, I never heard it actually put that way. And it's probably a slight exaggeration. But, be, you know, when you look at the back, well, if you look at Japan, they
0: won't Google it. It's OK. <laughs> <Japan>. <laughs> Sounds great.
2: So consider this, though, right? Japan has last I checked they have about 130 million citizens, mm-hmm. people who live in Japan, and they have about 70,000 people in prison in the whole country.
0: We've got double that of innocent people.
2: Right so what do we have 300 and something 320 million people in america yeah, right so
0: they're like 40 percent of our population
2: and but we lock people up at 14 times the rate per capita that they do yeah and there's no there's there's absolutely there's no serious social scientists who can show any positive impact on society of locking people up and mass the way we do and in fact there are tremendous negative consequences. Some of them were obvious, some of them were less obvious. Um, right. Some of them are short term, some of them are long term, but the consequences are devastating. And now here in the pandemic, it's even worse because, you know, can you imagine the only thing that could make the prison you know, experience for an innocent person worse is to have COVID raging through the prisons, right? So it's like, it's enough to make you insane but yeah your point is well taken
0: the reason also i had you define it is we have all these other injustices within our justice system that makes you question kind of the value of of like someone being guilty the coercion of plea deals because of our cash bail system which you've been a big part of you know fighting against is, is a good example of not what we're talking about today but another example of people who may may find themselves behind bars for an incredible amount of time before conviction you know and forced to take plea deals or maybe Maybe they end up free, but we have, I think, 500,000 people in prison pre-trial right now in the country as well.
2: Right. We have 500,000 people in jail. They're behind bars, so it's semantics, right? But the fact is, you're absolutely right to point that out. It's between maybe it's between four and 500,000 people on any given night in jail in America who haven't been convicted of anything. They're just there because they don't have money to post bail. And that is patently insane. And it's also a violation, it's a direct violation of the 6th and the 14th Amendment, right? Right. How can you even pretend that we have due process or equal protection when two different people get arrested for the same crime, and one goes home because they have-
0: Money in the bank.
2: Yeah, they have money in the bank, and the other one rot in prison for jail, which, by the way, jails, you know, it's interesting, right? Jail, most people think, I mean, jail is a more sort of benign concept than prison. Right. Right? Prison feels heavier. Jail sounds like Mayberry, right? Some guy in a, sleeping in his uh, rocking chair in a, you know, and there's a guy in a cell. Right. Like, that's the way it's been portrayed in movies over the years. But jails, by and large are more dangerous, dirtier, more deprivation, and much less of any of the things that can possibly provide a any sort of relief that exists in prisons, meaning outdoor exercise, yep. access to any kind of educational programs, or even any kind of structure, right? Because in jails are transient.
0: That that was the thing that stuck out to me without getting too, you know, sidetracked, but we, we I was talking to our friend Payne the Poet. Uh, a while ago, and I was he told me the same thing. Jails are actually where a lot of people uh, are hurt or raped, et cetera. And he said that the main driver behind that is that there's no social order. In a prison, right. especially you said those maximum security prisons, the longer-term prisons, there's a social order, there's a hierarchy, there's systems, everyone has their own routines and flows, and as long as you stay out of the way you know, and learn learn the system, it's fine.
2: Well, I, I, yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat that. Not fine. It can still be very dangerous and... and... Right. Extremely punitive, it's but it's not
0: somewhere you want to be.
2: And you could say that that system that that's set up is is a it's a system that is not one that is conducive to positive outcomes. But at yeah. least it's understandable, right? At least for some people, it is something that they can navigate because there's some sort of structure. And in jail, it's chaos.
0: So. Di- dialing back to wrongful convictions, ten percent is a crazy number in a country where you're supposed to have a unanimous jury that's beyond a reasonable doubt. Why are we convicting so many innocent people in our country?
2: Well, first of all, I want to go back to what you said before, Xander, because the you know the fact is that we have a guilty plea problem in this country. That's actually a hashtag guilty plea problem, right? And and that exists because people. When faced with the possibility, you know, the prosecutor holds this very serious stick, right? Because yep. they're able to say, Xander, you know, you don't plead guilty, you're looking at fifty years, right, or a hundred years, or whatever the hell crazy sentences we have. We have people in America sentenced to a thousand years, whatever, double life, six type terms. Right. But if if you just plead guilty, I'm going to give you three years. You could go home in one, you know, one one and a half. Right. And you know, if you're somebody, your lawyer doesn't even know your name. They haven't visited you. They're juggling 400 cases. They might be drunk. They might be anything, right? You know, that's that's a Sophie's choice that that you know people are inclined to take. Right. You know, and I wouldn't argue with them because, you know, you're looking at a, a system that is is stacked against you and a, really a life term.
0: Right. You're you're getting on average, I think, four minutes with your public defender or six minutes, something like that. The average person. Yeah, and,
2: and that's the other problem. It goes back to bail, right? So the problem is if you're Stuck in in jail, beside the deprivation of sunlight and and interaction with your family and access to school or work or your church or your apartment or your you know you have a pet, everything else that you're deprived of, um you also are deprived of the opportunity to meaningfully interact with your own attorney. You know by and large, pr- uh, public defenders, which is most people are represented by public defenders or even private attorneys. for them, the difference between having to drive to a prison, which might be remote or jail, I should say that might be remote, go through the whole process, the waiting, the screening, the thing, the di- whatever, it's like you're not going to get a lot of, of stuff done that way, yeah. whereas if you're out on bail, you could take your attorney to the place that the crime happened, you could show them why it couldn't be the way they said it was, right. you can go to their office, You can, and you're also not trying to survive at the same time, so yes, it's a huge difference. I think
0: you're, you're setting the table well here, which is like, it's not like most folks, as they head into trial, are, are well-prepped, have a lot of resources. And have have you know maybe someone that's spending a lot of time thinking about how to <laughs> keep them out of trouble here. All right, so so folks are going to trial in these circumstances. Is that would you say that's the main driver to uh, these wrongful convictions? Is just being under resourced and understaffed uh, as you try to defend yourself? Or are there other drivers to it? No,
2: there are a ton. I mean, the the most common causes, factors, and wrongful convictions. Um, there are many, but some of the ones that come to mind are. Junk science. You have um, incentivized witnesses, eyewitnesses, or mistaken eyewitnesses. That's the most common cause of wrongful conviction. Eyewitness identification is very damning, but you know people think that our minds work like a camera, our memories work like a camera. It couldn't be further from the truth. Eyewitness identifications have been proven in certain studies to be less accurate than guessing. So you know, process that for a minute.
0: I went to, uh, just just to digress for a second, I went to uh, San Francisco Police Department's uh, use of force training with our friend, Phil Goff, who's working on police reform. And uh, they tested you on that. They would put you in an intense situation and then they would ask you what the person looked like. I would get the gender wrong. I would get if they had or didn't have a weapon, I would get the race wrong. It's, it's incredible how unreliable our minds are, especially under stress and duress. That's
2: right. Because when, especially if it's a, uh, a situation in which your, your fight or flight instincts are triggered, everything gets thrown out of whack. And they've done study after study that show that they will do, I think it was first done in the 1890s in England, where a professor had someone burst into his classroom and attack him and then run out. And then he did a lineup for all the kids and every single kid got it wrong because he didn't put the real suspect in the lineup, but everybody identified somebody.
0: No one said it's none of them. Right.
2: It's none of them. Right. So, but everybody identified somebody. So, you know, you want to look, there's a lot of causes. We've only scratched the surface on it, but. You know, and one of them is the one we talked about, which is uh, defense incompetent or overwhelmed or overworked. You have um, uh, prosecutors and, and police that will lie. And then there's false confessions, uh, which is a surprisingly common thing. I think that's probably something that your listeners will find the most uh, unexpected is that in the first 150 exonerations that involve DNA, right? So these are people who are scientifically Certain not to have committed the crime that they commit, that they were convicted of. Right. 25% of those 150 cases involve false confessions. These are people who confess to a crime they did not commit. One out
0: of four. Just to pause real quick, what is driving these false confessions? Why are 25% of these folks confessing to crimes they didn't do? That's a
2: good question because I, I would I guarantee you if you go ask your first 100 people you run into, would you ever confess to a crime you didn't commit? They'll all say no. Right. But the fact is, nobody thinks they would ever break down like that. We know that it's most common among adolescents, people with mental challenges, and military people, um, actually, because they're, they're accustomed right. to obeying authority figures. But the fact is that false confessions uh, are as old as, as courts. Um, that goes back to Salem witch trials in America and all sorts of other things, but there, there, there's an example for you. But, but generally speaking, uh, the, the, first of all, in America, cops are allowed to lie in the interrogation room, not in other Western civilizations but they can lie to you.
0: That's unique to us.
2: So they can, so basically they have a whole protocol that they, it's almost like a play that they get trained to do where they do the good cop, bad cop thing. Now there have been many documented cases of physical violence where they've actually tortured people into confessing, but the psychological torture is equally effective. They keep you there for, I was just on the phone actually with a guy, Jerome Dixon, California case, who was interrogated, 17 years old. He was interrogated for 25 hours. And finally, he confessed to a crime he didn't commit. Now, everybody has a breaking Just point. Just get
0: you punch drunk,
2: and and not only that, but let's say you know you have a situation where they say to you, you know, you, you we know you did this. Uh, we got your fingerprints on the gun. You go, but I wasn't there. And they go, well, I don't know that, but you know what? There's a guy next door that he says he saw you do it. We got him in the other room, right down the hall. He says he saw you do it. We got your fingerprints on the gun. We got a thing that you know, they just go on and on and finally they can actually you know there there have been documented cases many of them actually where people left the interrogation room confessed and then they called their mother or loved one or whatever and said i i i can't believe it i, I committed this crime I must have done it in a blackout they actually become convinced that they actually committed the crime that they didn't commit wow and so that's how persuasive these tactics can be is
0: there something unique about our system and how we incentivize police to like to close a case and whatnot? Is it, it, seems like the incentive is to close the case versus to get to the right answer here. If they're going through these scripts that, where the end game is a guilty confession. No, that, that's right. I mean,
2: we would all hope that in the justice system, justice would be the desired outcome, but in fact closure seems to be the desired outcome. And so, and the incentives are real for police and prosecutors to close these cases. Um, A surprisingly low number of murder cases are actually solved in America, and that goes, it goes down further for other types of crimes. But yes, the answer is, they zero in on the suspect, they get tunnel vision for reasons that are either, either they really believe they got the person, and then they try to, then, then they start creating this scenario and ignoring exculpatory things or they just feel like dealing with it they're just like i don't like this guy xander he's just a fucking you know a guy who's a dickhead i don't play like him. i'm gonna frame him whatever it is that happens too with alarming frequency but tunnel vision is a very powerful thing you know the the fact is you know for people that are listening if you end up on a jury for instance if there's somebody who, who confessed to a crime but there's no other evidence connecting them to it, you really can't convict that person because you have to realize that they might've they might have confessed under extreme duress. And even though you think you wouldn't do it, you probably would.
0: It's counterintuitive.
2: Yeah, you get scared enough, you'll say anything. And and they'll say to you, listen, Xander, you seem like a nice guy, you got no record. No one's gonna really believe you did this, but my partner's crazy, man. This guy, I don't know what he's gonna do to you. When I leave the room, like, it's gonna get ugly. And I'm trying to help you out, buddy. Like, no one's, you know, let's just sign the thing, Tomorrow we'll sort this all out. Tonight you could go home, you'll sleep in your wow. own bed, and then you take you right to prison and you're done. You've just written your own death warrant. So, you know, I think we really need to have a more educated and a more skeptical jury pool. We'll really look at the at the people that are that are presenting evidence and say, you know, uh, something smells, if something smells fishy, it probably is.
0: Right. I'm sure, I'm sure that's not all taught to the jury as they, you know, as these regular citizens take on these roles on the, you know, lack of reliability of eyewitnesses and the lack of reliability on even confessions. I'm sure there's much to be Desired from from how we onboard people into these roles that they briefly hold.
2: Look, eighty percent of people approximately think that if someone's in the defendant's chair, they must have done something. Right. That's a natural bias and it's understandable, right? It's just basic psychology. So, right. you know, they start with that and then it all goes downhill fast. They also start, people are inclined to believe someone comes up and they go, I got a degree from this university and a medical school and I'm telling you that this is the blood that matches the thing. And we buy, we buy into the CSI uh, myth that these amazing people are solving all these crimes when in fact <laughs> so much of it is junk science, you know? I mean, we have a whole podcast dedicated to that, right? We have a whole podcast called Wrongful Conviction, Junk Science. And every week, I mean, one of the most fascinating episodes, every week they cover a different type of junk science. But one of the most fascinating episodes to me was the fingerprint one. I mean, I was actually taken aback by the fact that fingerprints are extremely unreliable Mm. and and the thing you also have to realize with with these sciences right to become an arson investigator it's a 40-hour course you can do it on correspondence i think right to become a blood spatter expert same thing 40 hours right and you can go testify in court you got medical examiners testifying who are not licensed you got people getting up there and saying it's definitely your teeth meanwhile I have fucking dentures right right It's so ridiculous that it would be a comedy skit, except that the consequences are people end up on fucking death row. So, you know,
0: let's shift gears to how, how, how we're fixing it you've been helping in this space for a long time. Can you talk about your work in the space? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I've been doing this since the early 90s or before it was cool, I guess. Um, I'm glad it's cool now, though. And uh, we got fucking cool dudes like you fucking all up in the mix, you know? You were being busy being born (laughs) at the time. But anyway, so yeah, you know, my work goes back to the early 90s. I mean, I've I've got this podcast, obviously. It's on my shirt. uh, It says with those people listening on the radio. So Wrongful Conviction is my podcast. Um, The Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flan, I guess is the technical name of it and um it's doing really well i mean it's getting the message out there in a meaningful way there are over 20 million downloads and and people are responding and it's it's actually having a positive impact on certain outcomes and you know i got a, i got a, an instagram a direct message from somebody uh recently who decided to go become a get get their phd in criminal justice and is going to become a lawyer amazing. And, you know because because she was listening to the podcast there's legislation being proposed in washington state by a legislator who listened to the podcast and decided he wanted to sponsor a bill that would make mandatory videotaping of interrogations you know the law in washington state so there's all these things happening fantastic in the road the I, i'm on the without getting too deep in the weeds i'm on the board of a number of wonderful organizations uh the innocence project families against mandatory minimums injustice watch uh, the NYU Prison Education Program, the Legal Action Center, it goes on. But, you know, the fact is I'm also into um, sort of micro-advocacy as well, you know, helping helping people who are, you know, who are trapped in the system through no fault of their own or helping people who have recently gotten out and trying to get back on their feet. And then also just talking with, you know, I was just on the phone with senior people in, in the governor's office, one of the big states in the country, um, and, you know, just trying to chip away at this giant fucking bolder until we you know finally turn the tide and I think I feel like we're almost there.
0: What is the thing or things that do turn the tide? What 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 are you most excited about happening?
2: I think we need to um we need to elect progressive prosecutors. Um, and we need to elect um, judges that are, you know, that are going to do their very best to make sure that that yeah. you know, fair trials are become the norm. Those are some of the things that will lead to systemic yeah. change, and it's happening. I mean, it was happening in Philadelphia with Larry Krasner in New Orleans with Jason Williams. The
0: DA stuff is awesome. Yeah,
2: the DA stuff is awesome. I know you're involved in it as well, and getting more and more involved. And, and I and I feel like it's a real movement now. I think totally. I think we're, you know, a, a couple of heartbeats away from a time when. You are running as a tough on crime prosecutor becomes a liability instead of, you know, something. And tough on crime is, is a, that's that's a catchphrase. It doesn't actually mean anything.
0: So you talked a little bit about your micro advocacy. You have some of the this work is hard, but the stories within it are can be amazing. What, what's one of your favorite stories from from doing this work for so long?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting. There's there. I'm happy to say that there are enough of them that I can't remember all of them. But one that comes to mind is Lenny Singleton. And funny enough, Lenny wasn't innocent. Uh, Lenny was a guy who was, uh, I read about his, I read his story in the New York Times actually, and it sat on my dining room table for months until I was able to figure out what to do. But Lenny was a guy, Navy veteran, came out and got addicted to crack, uh, had never been in trouble before. And as a a result of his addiction, he committed, I think, six dash and grab robberies. Uh, What that means is he went into a convenience store, waited online, and when somebody in front of him, uh, the cash register was open, he would grab whatever money he could and walk out the door.
0: Right, right. He
2: never never hurt anybody, never touched anybody, never bumped into anybody. Um, one time he carried a butter knife and the other times he carried no weapon whatsoever. So he was arrested and sentenced to, uh, pleaded guilty by the way, and sentenced to double life plus a hundred uh, years. Um, the judge was in a bad mood that day or whatever. And so, you know, when I learned about his case, he had been in for, I don't know, 22, 23 years. Yeah, so the judge sends him to this crazy ass sentence. And, you know, I was able to um, get in touch with the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, get a meeting with him. And we had a a very nice uh, dinner and a nice talk. He was shocked. He wasn't aware of this case, but he was shocked and horrified to hear about it. You know, he, well, he granted that one as well as a couple of others that I was advocating for. Um, and I had the great, uh, amazing pleasure of walking Lenny out of prison on a cold uh, day in, I can't remember, March or something uh, in Virginia. And he's just a, it's just a sensational guy, you know, who had an addiction problem, which should have been treated. Yeah. Um, right. i mean the guy was a military veteran he probably had ptsd and everything else so anyway so that one uh, i'm still very close with lenny and his wife mandy and they're wonderful people he's now helping so many others as well uh, with their clemency petitions and, and just doing fa- fabulous work so yeah that's one i'm, I'm particularly drawn to yeah
0: one, one of the one of the frustrating things in you know prison reform is we, we talk a lot about you know the danger of letting folks out and ignore the danger of that many folks being in. Like if you looked at net harm, say you released 2 million, and 50 of them went and hurt someone. Let's, let's call it a bigger number. Let's call it 50,000 went and hurt one person. So you have 50,000 people that got hurt versus 2 million being hurt every single day. We talk about, cities that have, you know, improved on crime statistics, et cetera, because we don't have metrics around like the net wellness of all the folks that are sitting in prison and, and that being a negative outcome, right? Sure. You can, you could get crime to zero if, if no one in prison counts as, as a harmed individual, if you want to throw everyone in there.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's not, to, and there's that, and then there's the ripple effect on their family, their, their community, you know, and their kids will most likely end up following them at the prison. We know that's the number one reason why kids end up in prisons if they've had a parent in prison. So the The harm extends out, you know, all over the place. Of course, you know the best. The person that speaks, I think, most eloquently about this is Alek Katsanas, who you know well, mm-hmm. and his book "Usual Cruelty" uh, is really the. Uh, I think it drives a, a stake right through the heart of this issue.
0: Hundred percent. All right, so let wrap this thing up. The floor is yours, my friend. Whatever you have to share, please share it.
2: Yeah, I, listen, I hope, I I feel like I'm very, very lucky that I found this sort of my calling in my early 30s that, that drew me in so much that it's become just a very organic part of my life and for all the frustration that comes with it. And it is, there's an extraordinary amount of that, the joy and the usefulness, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I feel uh, for being a part of helping to repair. At least a fraction of the, the disaster that is our criminal legal system um you know i i, I hope that every endless and listen, so many people are doing so many wonderful things so it's not like i'm you know some sort of outlier but i hope that everyone finds something that motivates them in that way and then they get to experience the same type of joy from making a difference because it's fucking great
0: right on well i'm grateful for you're out there i'm grateful for your guidance as i've you know to your point you know come into the space recently and try to hit the ground running be as useful as i can and um love you bro thank you for joining us
2: right back gotcha love you right back talk to you soon all
0: right brother Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.